Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you joining us online, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you took some time out to uh, pursue Jesus together with us. Um, If you want to follow along, in a minute, the first passage we're going to get to is going to be in 1 Corinthians 2. If you don't, don't worry, I'll I'll read it to you. Um, But I I got a couple things for you. First is this, is if you're in the room, you can look around and you can see, um, some of you may not notice this, the room's a different color than it was when you were in here last time. Um, the room's a different color. There used to be carpet all across the back wall because somebody in 1981 thought that carpet would be helpful on the back wall. It was a nice style design. I don't know, one of the two. There used to be a window over there. And it's not there. (laughs) Oh yeah. And the acoustics of this room used to just be a sheetrock box. Um, and it was horrendous and horrible. And about 10 or 12 years ago, a family in this church hired a company to come up with designs for how we could acoustically treat this room. And we just never had the money to do it. And um, as we talked about it, um, over the last six weeks, we had uh, about um, almost a dozen people that spent a lot of time in this room, became very familiar with how tall these walls are. Um, doing all kinds of sheetrock work, retexturing the whole room, repainting the whole room, and then putting up what is actually right now is only about 50% of the panels that are going to be in this room. There's still a lot more that are going to go up in this room. And uh, a a lot of times, a little quick question, take a guess. Anybody, um, how much paint do you think it takes to paint this room? A couple cans. A couple cans. 30 by two and a half. Um, 70 gallons to paint this room, because those are big walls, okay? Lots of paint, lots of paint. And every when we're all done, the acoustic panels in here, there'll be 240 hand-built acoustic panels, every single one of them built by Mark Powell. Right? Now, he wanted to make sure that I knew, that I let you know, there were some people that helped him, uh, the Hoovers and his wife and some other people stopped by on occasion, um, uh, and we're grateful for them, but Mark Powell is, is putting in the grunt of building 240 panels, um, wrapping fabric, cutting wood for all, it's a ton of work, and during this last six weeks, um, Rich Bitzer and Dan Sproul and their wives, um, Anne and Eileen, spent a very long weekend and multiple nights in here painting this whole room, right? Um, and Tina Palmer came in this week and did some, some touch-up work. And Rich Barker and Darren Shamanic, if you know them, they're rock stars. They become very familiar with every square inch of this building as they did all the sheetrock and all the texture work. And then they've helped me hang all the panels that are up here. And um, it's a lot of work setting up and tearing down scaffolding and climbing up and down scaffolding. And uh, so if we could just give all of them just kind of one round of applause for all the work they've put in. Um, uh, also, today's an important day. Today is a monumentally important, today is a demarcation in human history. Today, today, every single one of you have become old timers. Here's what I mean. Every single one of you now, from anybody else who shows up, moves into the city of Monmouth and Independence, you will now be able to say, I lived here. I remember the day before we had Taco Bell. (laughs) for the second time. 
Because if you're a real old timer, you know that actually we used to have a Taco Bell. <laughs> and in a miraculous, unusual feat of human history, Taco Bell went out of business somehow. And so now we have a Taco Bell here. Like you don't have to go to Dallas to get sick. Like you can do it right here at home. Isn't that awesome? Like this is an important day. I think this should be a day that we need to mark on the calendar. We need to celebrate. This is the year that we got Taco Bell. Important stuff. Um, so here's the deal. Um, we're going to start a new series this week. We're going to spend six weeks, um, and we're going to talk about some things. Um, we just titled the series Us, um, because we're going to have a conversation about what it means to be we. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this experiment yourself, or if you did it with a child or the grandchild, um, but often there's this popular thing that, um, it's good practice, a good conversation to have, is maybe when you're in um, you know, junior high or maybe in high school and you're starting to have conversations about dating and about what that's going to look like and the type of people you're going to date. Maybe you didn't do this yourself, but maybe you did this with a child or grandchild. And you said to them, you said, you know, you know what's something you should do before you start just kind of dating out there? You should make a list. You should write a list of the type of person that, that you might want to date. Right? List some character traits of the type of person because then um, you can kind of have an idea of, you know, what that person's going to kind of look like and you can be paying attention and, you know, and maybe you went through this exercise yourself or someone else and here's the thing. When you make the list, have you ever done this? Um, the list always turns out the same. Uh, kind. Funny. Not an axe murderer. <laughs> right? Because when you sit down to make a list, if you tried to do this, if you tried to make a list to describe someone, maybe even someone you know really well, it's incredibly difficult to contain the essence of someone's being in an arbitrary list. But over the next five weeks, we're going to try to have a conversation about some statements that we think describe us. Now, they're not going to contain the whole of the identity and the essence of who we are as a church and as a people of God. They're just phrases that help kind of paint out a corner of who we are and, and try and help us remind ourselves of what's important to us. Maybe you've seen some of them. We have them um, written out on the walls as you, as you come in or you go out. They say stuff like this. This is what we're going to look at over the next, over the next five weeks. We are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. We are the church and we exist for the world. And another one says this, we will lead the way with irrational generosity. We truly believe that it is more, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Another one says this, we are big thinking, bet the farm risk takers. We will never insult God with small thinking or safe living. Fourth one says this, we will do everything short of sin to reach people who don't know Jesus, to reach people no one's reaching, we must do things that no one is doing. And lastly, it says this, we were created to worship one God with one voice. We believe that something mysteriously powerful happens when the people of God gather. Now, now there aren't phrases or statements that fully encapsulate the essence of who we are, but they're, they're these statements that try and kind of paint a picture of the edges of what's important 
to us. But if you've ever done one of those lists, or if you sit down with your child and you do one, and um, you know, when I, when I was in high school, there were some people, and they would always ask me about, you know, if I was dating someone, they'd ask me about the character traits of the person. But there were some people in my life that they would ask me the first question they'd always ask. And when we have these conversations with our kids as they grow up, it's going to be our first question. The non-negotiable that sits at the top of the list is this: Do they love Jesus? Right? Do they love Jesus? More important than any other character trait is that question. And for us, over the next five weeks, we're going to look at these kind of character traits of what it means to be a part of MCC, but the thing that hangs over it, the, 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 the thing that the non-negotiable first requirement, the prerequisite of any of the list is this truth that we, that we are Jesus people. That we are a people about Jesus, about his message, trying to live out as best we can who he's called us to be for his glory so that others might know who he is. We are Jesus people. More important than anything else about what it means to be a church is that we are Jesus people. And see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, it's easy to drift, right? Like you might be sitting there and go, well, of course, Sean, I'm at a church. Like, duh, Right? But it's easy to forget things and it's easy to, to, to drift. In fact, as you read through scripture, Paul, when he writes letters to other people, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians in a second. When he writes letters to people, the first thing he tells them over and over and over again is the gospel. Because it's easy. It's why scripture tells us to not forsake the gathering together of believers. Because it's easy for us to forget. It's um, in like leadership circles and stuff like that. They'll talk about mission drift. It's easy for us to get busy doing stuff and we begin, our heart begins to drift away from the why. It's easy, in the, even in the church world, right? It's easy for us to um, go through the rhythms of showing up to church, of joining online, of, of, uh, of walking in the building, getting a coffee cup and putting the same exact creamer and the same amount of sugar in you do every single time and you walk in and no matter what you commit to yourself, you're always the exact same four minutes late as you are every single week, right? And you sit on the same side of the room. I can bet that most of you who sit on this side of the room have never sat on this side of the room because you're right side of the room people. And there's like a subtle war going on with left side of the room people. And these are our peacekeepers. This is Switzerland right here. <laughs> and we go through this rhythm. And we can say Jesus, we can sing songs, and our heart begins to drift so easily. And we begin to forget what makes us who we are, that we are Jesus people. And when groups, organizations, teams begin to forget the central identity of who they are, things begin to go weird and go sideways. Examples. Um, you remember Blockbuster? Yeah. Remember? They, they were around when we had our first Taco Bell. And um, we didn't have a Blockbuster here. We had Hollywood Video. It was open for about six months before it closed. Right? You just have to go to the Family Fun Center, um, which is where PCL is. I'm making myself really old. Anyways, but Blockbuster, did you know this? That Blockbuster had an opportunity to purchase Netflix. And you know what the CEO did when, he was, when, when, the, when the people came to the board to present this proposal to purchase Netflix for $50 million, which sounds like a lot of money, right? 
He laughed. People in the boardroom said that when he was proposed with this thing for $50 million to buy the startup called Netflix, he laughed because he said, who would ever watch videos on the internet? (laughs) You see, um, the CEO of Blockbuster, he thought that they were in the DVD rental company, DVD rental business. He forgot that they were in the home movie business. And when he forgot what they were about, Blockbuster went bankrupt, and Netflix is now worth $19.7 billion. Other example. Taco Bell. Are you sensing a theme here yet? (laughs) About seven or eight years ago, Taco Bell got sued. Maybe you heard about this. Taco Bell got sued. A lawyer had done a bunch of research and hired a bunch of labs and um, they went all around the country and they purchased food from Taco Bell and they took it to the labs and they studied the contents of the tacos. And they sued Taco Bell for false advertising because the false advertising was that there was beef in the tacos. Now, you may not know this, this may not sit well with your stomach right now since lunch is coming up soon. The FDA actually only requires something to have 85% beef for it to be called beef. The rest can be rubber tires, right? So just, just, just know that. He did a study, they did all these studies, and, and their argument was that of the thousand locations that they tested the beef from, none of them met the FDA requirement of 85%. He even, his argument was, it wasn't even 85% um, animal byproduct, which is a very loose term, right? In fact, they said nationally when they studied it, the average came out that um, when you buy a Taco Bell taco, that about 35% of it is animal byproduct. Makes you feel better about what you ate this week, waiting in that drive through line. I saw some of you parked in that drive through line, <laughs> Right? He said that one of the tacos they tested came out with 3% animal byproduct. 3%. So they sued big national news and stuff like that. You know what Taco Bell's response was? Hey, uh, we got a taco made out of a Dorito. Like, Taco Bell didn't care. In fact, Taco Bell themselves made commercials that made fun of the lawsuit. Because you know what Taco Bell realized? They're not in the fine dining business. You know what Taco Bell's in? Taco Bell is in the bad decision-making business, right? They know that nobody was like, you know what, I really, I'm trying to watch my health and take care of myself. I'm going like all organic. Taco Bell is my jam, right? Taco Bell remembered who they were and what they were about. And when people went, there's no meat in your tacos, Taco Bell was like, (laughs) our spokesman is a chihuahua. What do you expect? (laughs) Right? But it's so easy. It's so easy for churches. It's so easy for families. It's so easy for organizations. It's so easy for individuals to slowly begin to drift and forget what at the core they're really supposed to be about. So the question I want to ask you today is, what is at the core of who you're called to be? We as a church, at the core of who we're called to be is, 
a Jesus church, a church about proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is, about a community of people who are seeking to draw closer to Jesus, uh, a community of people who are wrestling with what does it mean for each one of us to live more and more like Jesus. And so Paul, he writes to 1 Corinthians, to, not to 1 Corinthians, he writes to Corinthians, the church at Corinth, and he says this, in 1 Corinthians 2, chap, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, if, if you have a Bible in front of me, you, you can look and actually see in the first, like in the chapter right before, the second half of chapter 1, he actually is doing what I just said he, he's doing. He's just telling them, again, the gospel. He's telling them about Jesus and the sacrifice and grace and mercy and, 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 you know, the crazy stuff that God's done. How shocking it is what Jesus has done for us. And then he says this. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with you with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined, look at this, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Um, let, let me try and say this as clearly as I can. Um, I think that um, if you followed everything that Jesus tells you to do and the way he tells you to live your life, but you didn't love Jesus, that you would still live the best possible life. Like in this world, that you would live the best, like here's what I mean. Um, I think that when Jesus says, be faithful to your spouse, like that is the best way to live your life, right? You don't have to believe in Jesus and, and, and good advice would be like, be faithful to your spouse. He says like, um, forgive people. Right? Like, I believe that apart from Jesus, that if we were a people who forgave really well and really often and really aggressively, like, that would be a better way of living our lives than living our lives bitter. Like, when Jesus is like, don't murder people, like, I, I think that's a, that's a better way of living uh, our lives, to not hate each other, that even if we, if we dissected our faith in Jesus, but we just lived the way, maybe what we would say, the wisdom of Jesus, that we would still live the best life, but it would be void of life in Christ. And sometimes, here's where I'm going with this, sometimes we get so focused on the wisdom of Jesus that we miss Jesus. Sometimes we become so focused on that Jesus is a more pragmatic, better way to live your life. When he calls you to be generous, and then when it says that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive, and then we give something, and something inside our soul like jumps and leaps, and we come alive, we're like, this is awesome, right? That if our message becomes that you should give stuff, we've missed it. We've missed it. If all we do as a church is say, um, you know, Jesus said you should be faithful to your spouse, so we're going to do a bunch of marriage conferences on, on how to be faithful and how to have a great marriage, you would have a great marriage if you follow the things that Jesus says to you, to do to you. But if that's all that we proclaim, if that's where our focus comes, if that becomes the central thing of what is most important to us, we will have missed it. 
will have missed it. Sometimes it can become easier for us to be distracted by even good things that Jesus calls us to. But you see what Paul says? For I determined to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. You can turn a little bit. Turn um, left if you're following along to the book of Acts. Acts verse 1. Sorry, not Acts verse 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. In verse 6. Verse 7 is where we'll start. Um, Luke, he he writes the book of Acts. And um, if we kept like the Corinthians model, we could have actually just called it like We could have called the Gospel of Luke, we could have called it Luke 1, and then we could have called Acts like Luke 2, right? Because Luke, the book of Luke is about Jesus' life, and the book of Acts is about the early church, both written by Luke together. And he says this, he he gives um, like his version of the Great Commission. Um, You remember the Great Commission? It's It's in the book of Matthew. Do you remember um, we've, we've been there. If you don't remember, we can start back at Matthew 1, um, and we can get ourselves there. You remember it? He says this. Look, look, this is how he records the Great Commission. He says this. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times, the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's talking about like when, when God's going to restore everything. But you, will, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Interesting historical thing just to think about geographically. Um, when Jesus says these words to the disciples that, you, that even to the remotest parts of the earth, if you'd asked the disciples to name the most remote part that they could imagine, they would not have fathomed the place we sit in now. That we are in part the fulfillment of their obedience to this message of Christ alone. He calls them to this. This is what he tells them. He says, this is your job is to be my witness, to tell people what you've seen, what you've heard, what Jesus has done in your life. This is your job. Now, as disciples and followers of Jesus, this is the commission that we've been given to be witnesses everywhere, to proclaim this singular message, as Paul says, of Christ and him crucified. You, you remember Matthew 16? We could not go to Matthew. So if you, Matthew 16, Matthew 16, um, Jesus is talking and he, he asks, you, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you, but um, uh, Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, he says, you know, who, who do they say that I am, right? And, and you remember he says um, that some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And you remember this? Peter says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood, wisdom, wisdom of men, right, did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. I also say to you that Peter, and that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. This testimony, the statement that he made, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That on this testimony, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Listen, listen. This is the message that we have. 
of Christ and him crucified, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God. You know, we, we carry this name being Christians, right? Being Christians, uh, um, you know, it comes from this idea of, of, of Christians, Christ's ones, little Christ, um, the ones of Christ, right? The kind of, um, and even that word Christ, it comes from the word Messiah, which is the Hebrew word or the anointed one. And so we're the ones of this anointed one, of this, of this Christ one, but you know what's funny is it's not the name that the followers of Jesus gave themselves. It's not the name they chose for themselves. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts in the beginning, what they call themselves is that they are part of the way. Right? And this is kind of rabbinic language to say the, re, the way of the rabbi of Jesus. That was kind of short for it. That they followed in the way, in the footsteps, in the path. Right? Jesus says that, to take up your cross and follow me. Right? And that's kind of the, the way... And there's this one part in the book of Acts, and it says that, that this was the first place that they were called Christians. And if you look at extra-biblical um, uh, history and stuff like that, there's a lot of information about why they began to call them Christians. And here's what um, a historian who's an atheist um, and is fascinated by the development of Christianity, he wrote this great book called The Triumph of Christianity. Um, he, here's what he said. He said that they were called Christians... Because in the language and the categories of the world, they had no boxes they fit in. Think about this. For most of our lives, for most of the things that go on in our lives, we can find a category we can put people in, right? We can say, um, you know, they're, they're, they're white collar or they're blue collar. They're Republican, they're Democrat, they're independent, they're out to lunch, right? We can... We can they're sports people, they're not sports people. They're artistic, they're not artistic. They're great singers, they're Sean is tone deaf, right? They're, we can have all these categories, we can put boxes, we can put people in, but here's what he points out, is that there was something so unique and so weird about the early followers of Jesus, that they lived out the words that Paul is saying to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, that they could not find a category to put him in, that the only thing that made sense to him is that they're just these people that are really obsessed about Jesus. They're really obsessed about this Christ. They're these Christ people, and all they do is talk about him and how he changed their lives and proclaim and testify everywhere that they go. But it's so easy for us for our lives to slowly begin to drift and for us to forget. So my question to you today is this. Where is it in your life? Where is it in your life that this call, this responsibility that Jesus has entrusted to you, this life that Paul tried to live out to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, where are those things that have begun to distract begin to blur the light that you were called to be, that have begun to cloudy the waters of the message that you were entrusted with, what is it for you? Like, let's get awkward here, okay? I, uh, I had a conversation with a family a year or so ago, and the gist of the story was that they began to recognize their kids were kind of in a prime sports age, 
And they began to realize that if anybody looked at their calendar, that they would recognize that um, it'd be very easy for anyone to identify that they were more concerned with their kids in sports than they were with their kids knowing Jesus. That if you looked at your calendar, that it'd look a lot more like sports was what you were about and church was a hobby that you did on occasion when you were in town on the weekends for an hour. And so maybe, the, I'm, and I'm, maybe this isn't for you, right? And, and I say this, I say this fully recognize, like I coach football. Like sports are good. There's a lot of great things about sports, but when things begin to become the central focus of who we are and where our identity rests, they said their great concern, their great concern was that their kids would grow up and they'd leave the home, and the way they would identify themselves first was by the sport they excelled at and not being sons and daughters of Jesus. Was it for you? Was it for you? We're already there, so let's be awkward. Let's talk politics. Do your neighbors know more about your political opinions than they knew about your love for Jesus? Has politics, which in its right place has a right place and can be good, has it become a God for you and begun to distract from the singular central message that you have of Christ and him crucified? Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a hobby you have that, that began as like a little side thing and now it consumes your time and it consumes your money. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's an advancement in a career. Maybe it's accomplishments in a career. What is it for you? The most dangerous and most painful thing about all this is that most of the time, the things that distract our hearts from the call of Jesus on our life to proclaim nothing but Christ and him crucified are good things. They're good things, but they're good things that have become God things. Was it for you? There's an author there's an author uh, named Bob Goff. Maybe you've read some of his books. And um, he uh, will tell you in his books, or if you ever hear him speak, that he is an ambassador of an African nation. I can't remember what African nation he's an ambassador for. Um, but as he tells you, he'll tell you the story. He said it was actually on accident. He didn't intend on becoming the ambassador, which seems like a weird accident to have. But he says um, he and his friends used to play really big pranks on each other. Right? And so one day he gets a phone call from, from someone on the phone and they said, you know, hi, I am with such and such government and you were recommended, we wanted to know if you would be willing to be our ambassador to the United States. And he thought, immediately he thought, this is my buddy's playing a prank on me. And he's like, sure, what do I got to do? And they said, well, we're going to send you a plane ticket. We need you to take the plane ticket and we will meet you at the airport so that we can do the official ceremony so that you can become the ambassador for our nation, we have to have this formal ceremony. It's like, okay, sure, right? Just playing like, like, like baiting his friends, right? So he gets the plane ticket. It's like, this is pretty extravagant. They spent money on a plane ticket for me, right? So he gets on the plane. He tells his wife, I don't know. I'm, go, I'm supposed to go to LAX. I'm going to be an ambassador, right? She's probably like, you're nuts, whatever, right? So he gets on the plane. He lands. He picks up his luggage. He goes out, and all of a sudden, this row of black SUVs pulls up. He's thinking, man, 
this is extravagant. Like they invested some serious money in renting all these black SUVs. And on the corners, like, like an ambassador's uh, rig, they have all the flags in the nation on the corners of the vehicles. And, and somebody gets up and, and opens the door and in very traditional African garb um, says, uh, you know, Mr. Goff, uh, we're going to take you to the Hilton we, where we're going to do the ceremony. And he says, sure. So he gets in a line of cars with a bunch of strangers at an airport. Not wise advice. And so he gets in the car and they drive him to this nearby airport and they take him into the, um, uh, to the conference center where there's more people in traditional African garb. And still at this point, he's thinking like, this is a joke, Right? So they begin the process of making him the ambassador, which first begins with him becoming a citizen of that nation, right? And so he, he goes through the whole process, and it's not until he's partway through that he realizes they're serious. And he's now the ambassador of an African nation, which requires him to turn over his passport and to refute his U.S. citizenship. The weird thing about being an ambassador, maybe you know this, is that anywhere an ambassador goes is sovereign soil of a foreign nation, right? If you rent an office, when they're in the car, like when, if you ever see an ambassador driving in a car, every single one of those cars is a sovereign, is, is, the, is the territory of a sovereign nation. So he says this, he says the weird um, problem with that is that like at his house, First of all, at his house, he has to fly the flag of this, uh, of this uh, African nation. He says if someone breaks into his house, he can't call 911 because he's not in America, right? He can't call 911. They can't respond. It's sovereign territory of a foreign nation. Uh, he, is the man, he is the incarnate representative of a nation that nobody else can see. He says if someone breaks into his house, he has to call the FBI, and it's an international incident crossing borders. Right? You know, Jesus calls us to be ambassadors, to be a kind of people who carry a different flag, who are an incarnate representation of a nation that people cannot yet see. Church, we are to be a people who every step we take, we fly the flag of one person, of one king. We are to live in a life in such a way that a world around us goes, I don't know what's up with them, and they don't fit in any boxes. But they're really obsessed with this Jesus guy. We have one single call, and my question to you, my humble request of you, is to be courageous enough to be honest with yourself and ask this question. What is it in my life that has been distracting, been drawing away, been muddying the waters of this call that I have on my life to be a witness, to be an ambassador, to carry the flag of Christ everywhere I go. Rick Warren. Rick Warren says this great quote, and he says, you know, in heaven there are two things you can do. There are two things you can do on earth that you can't do in heaven. One is sin, and the other is tell people about Jesus. And he asked this question, what do you think you're here for? So let me ask you that. What do you think you're here for? And what is it for each one of us and for us collectively that is distracting our eyes from the call that we have to know nothing but Christ and him crucified? May we be a type of people that the community around us looks at us and goes, I don't know what's up with them, but they seem really excited about this Jesus guy. May we be kind of people who with every breath we breathe 
fly the flag of a king of a nation that people have not yet seen.